This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to the minefield. Ramadan Mubarak, everybody, which is relevant in ways that uh, are about to become plain. Well, Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. This is the program where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Although, to be fair, for the next month or so, we're not really doing that. Um, or are we? Or are we? Yeah. Well done, Scott. No You're problems. picking up what I was putting down. <laughs> That's kind <laughs> of my good. job, isn't it? Isn't the... Well, I don't know, actually. Pick up the we hints, haven't... follow the breadcrumbs? Maybe. I wonder if it's in reverse. I should All check right. our respective job descriptions okay. to try to figure out how it's meant to work. You'd think I'd know how it's meant to work by now. Alas, no. Uh, one thing that I do know, though, is that we've developed something of a Ramadan tradition on this show. So where did we end up this year? Look, these are the shows that I look forward to more than any other, truly. Um, Because I think there is something about the series, the intention of it, the underlying purpose of it and the scope that I find so invigorating, so thrilling, as if we're getting in contact with the kind of discussions that would have been recognizable to, that would have been intelligible to those who have lived before us, even hundreds, perhaps even thousands of years, if you sort of eradicate the language barrier. In other words, it it seems to me, Willie, that there are so many ways in which we conceive of what it is that's going on when we do something like moral philosophy that simply would not have been intelligible to, say, someone like Aristotle or Plato, or to a great Stoic, for instance, like Marcus Aurelius or Seneca or Cicero, or to some of the great theologians and mystics of the past who have thought so deeply about the conditions of the moral life, the conditions within which the inner self can grow and thrive and live justly and rightly and lovingly and purely and tenderly in a world that seems to demand at every turn compromise with injustice. Can I go further? Yeah. Even that sentence, I think, that you, that you just spoke, I think sounds resoundingly alien Yeah. in our age. I was thinking about this the other day. When, when we talk of morality now, our, our morality seems entirely public-facing or social. Mm, I think that's right. But then beyond that, when we talk about something that's inward now, we're almost never really talking about a moral or spiritual discipline so much as we're talking about a kind of therapy. Mm. So the way this gets expressed, I think, in contemporary society is that we talk about well-being or mental health or something like that. And that's a that's just a totally different paradigm. In, in a way, it's a demoralized paradigm. Which is not to say it has no value or has no place, just that it's a different starting point or it's a different thing to dominate our, our consciousness. So when we, it's, it's really interesting that you opened this up as kind of a conversation that we could have with the ancients. Mm. I, think it's, I think it's really interesting because I think it's true. There is something about how far we have drifted as a society in our concerns, the idea of becoming better people in a way that isn't merely something that sounds in politics. Mm. 
is just not something we do. But there is some there is an assumption underneath it, which I agree with, by the way, but which I think it would be worth getting you to tease out, which is why would us having a conversation that we could have with the ancients be a good thing? Why would that be the test for whether or not we're having a a useful or a meaningful or a rich conversation? Yeah, yeah, that's a wonderful question. And in fact, the sheer fact that so many of the ancients have been effectively cancelled or have been deemed as being entirely irrelevant for our modern concerns or have nothing to say to us, I think has been one of the forms of, if I can put it this way, almost arch contempt with which we see ourselves and our relative importance and the uh, the importance of the issues that dominate our lives and our concerns and also the degree to which, quite frankly, I simply believe, Walid, that our language has become so shallow, so mechanistic, so utilitarian, so unheeded, unguarded, and ultimately tool-like or workman-like we aren't able to modulate our moral language in the way and to the degree that those who lived before us did, not least because the, how can I put this, the rivulets, the sources of wisdom, the forms of light that cast illumination upon what it is to live well, to pursue the good, to be inclined to that which is of the highest value. Those things have been sort of cut off all around us uh, there's a, a very strange Korean, German-speaking Korean philosopher, Byung-Chul Han, who I've been reading quite a lot of lately. He's a very strange, he's sort of trained in, a, in the Frankfurt School, speaks German, and yet uh, his philosophy is very curiously, oddly, uh, in a kind of constant dialogue with past religious rituals and the ancients. And one of the things that he points out again and again is that we, we live in a time of the infinite reproduction of the same and the infinite reproduction of the self. One of the things that social media does, one of the things that media generally does, one of the things that public discourse does, is it flattens everything else so that the one thing that you never experience is surprise. You never truly encounter an other. You simply encounter various forms and formulations of yourself, of what you ex already expect to see. And I think there's, there's something in that, Waleed. There's something about the absence of genuine encounter with a thought world, with a form of wisdom that's so utterly unlike us that it almost casts us and our sense of ourself into the shadows because we're so overwhelmed by the way that the light, capital L light, has illuminated something we just never saw before. The way that the textures of, say, rituals, of, of observances, of periods of silence, of periods of self-restraint and discipline, the way that they inflect and add grooves and textures to the character of the way that we live. Um, I think those are, those are the things that we've done ourselves out of, not least because we've been so assured by the rightness of our cause, by the justness of our war, and by the utter wrongness of our enemies, that it's almost like we've kind of elevated the self and its standing to a position of infallibility as if, okay, yes, there are things to struggle for. Yes, there are wars to be won, but all of the struggles are external. All of the wars are outside of us. Our enemies are easy and easily identified. The cause of capital J justice is simple to identify if difficult to achieve. In other words, there's just nothing to learn internally, 
the, the real struggle is purely external. And purely material. And purely material. I think that's exactly right. I don't mean material in the Marxist sense. No, I mean, no, no, no. That there wouldn't be some kind of internal or spiritual dimension to these problems. Mm. It's interesting, I guess, that when you come to analyse the world and this, this is what separates one political ideology from another, it often comes down to which lens it is that you want to apply. So, you know, what is the axis um, or the ax- what are the axes by which you diagnose the problems with society? So mm. are they economic? Are they to do with material conditions? That is, in the case of Marxism, are they symbolic um, and identity-based, as we're now beginning to see becoming more popular within politics? You could have a radically different approach that says, actually, all the problems that we have in the world stem from the central evil of arrogance mm. or the central wow, evil of, of ego yeah. or, or the central evil of fear mm. of one's provenance in the world or something like that. Even to say it as <laughs> a thought experiment sounds alien. That That's the point, I guess, that we're making is that and maybe this is just a consequence of a diverse society and a society that can only really manage that diversity through a kind of secular liberalism and versions of it and critiques of it, but that is always the starting point, is that you you can politicise spirituality, but you can't spiritualise politics. Hmm. It doesn't... Well, you, you, you can spiritualise spiritualize politics, but it becomes a form of kind of radical divisiveness, a way of identifying one's enemies in a, in a manner that is No, no, more... no, you're, t- you're talking about religifying politics. Yeah, I'm not talking yeah, about yeah, that. True. I'm okay, talking about... Okay. So in Good. other words, making... To, here we go. I'll use a word from our bingo card. <laughs> to, to imbue politics uh, and our political orientation towards one another with some kind of spiritual ethic yeah. is just unimaginable, right? So what we do in the, instead is that we take that which should go to the core of our spiritual selves and we politicise it mm. because that's the only move that's available to us really in any kind of public-facing way. Um, and the only way to avoid that would be to enter some kind of, I don't know, discursive retreat, I guess, mm. where you simply don't engage in, in the public discourse. That's mm. kind of how it goes. Anyway, so we've probably outlined why it is that um, this series is such a weird and as I said, quietly subversive thing to be doing. Do you want to be more specific yes, about please. how we're going to frame this? Okay, and, and this just shows just how odd we are. And I love this. <laughs> I, Waleed, I just, I love this. And, and look, I mean, one of the things, can I just point out that you highlighted, is that I think for very good reasons, one of the reasons that in our politics, in our public discourse, we tend not to gravitate towards quote-unquote spiritual or theological or normative moral philosophical concepts is because of the diversity of our societies, the non-homogeneity of the political communities that have gathered together. Anything that feels like an elevation of a particular tradition over others can't help but be, um, say, spiritually tyrannical or ends up speaking a language that just doesn't fit. You know what I mean? That, that can't be readily spoken, that feels alien or foreign. On another it's not within time. public reason. It's yeah. not within public reason. And, you know, I know that sometimes we sort of diss that. But 
I think, you know, using language that is intelligible to one another, using forms of persuasion, it's actually, in fact, a form of neighbor love. It's, it, it's an offer. It's an open-handed gesture for someone to meet us in a, in, in a common place where we can say, this is how I see things. This is the world that I can see through the lights that I have. Is anything about this, can anything about this shed light on the way that you see the world? Or what can you say that can shed light on the way that I see the world? So I think public... Right. Pub- Which, by the way, and I use the phrase public reason advisedly because that's the Rawlsian yeah, yeah. concepts. Where Rawls is kind of coming from there is in saying, look, there is nothing to which you can appeal that sits above everything. There's, no, there's nothing transcendent to which mm. you can appeal that will have purchase for everybody. Mm. So we're better off not worrying about that. And so we set up rules for public reasoning that are really about what is it that absent those kind of transcendental notions becomes intelligible to other people. And that's kind of how we proceed, right? Yeah. I actually have a slightly different way, by the way, of casting what it is that Rawls is doing there. That, I mean, of course he has that idea of public reason, but he also has the idea of overlapping consensus, where just enough is found in common among us that that then becomes a new foundation upon which we can build something like a common life. But do you think he's talking there at the level of an overarching meta-narrative? Wow. Or is he talking more at the level of interest? This is the interesting thing, Willie. This is the interesting thing. And I'm I'm not just bringing this out of the blue because I think this is maybe kind of central to a lot of what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. Um, A philosopher who I love deeply, Stanley Cavell, has this image of marriage that nothing guarantees marriage that is extrinsic to marriage. In other words, there is nothing that a couple signs up to that guarantees the conditions of marriage from without. The only thing that guarantees marriage is the endless reaffirmation of one's loyalty to commitment to love for and sacrifice for the sake of that marriage within the conditions of the marriage itself. In other words, the transcendental ground for that marriage are always constituted within the conditions of the marriage itself. And I kind of think that when Rawls talks about something like an overlapping consensus, a lot of people have seen that as sort of a bare minimum, a a minimalist vision for the way a democratic society can proceed. Whereas I really do think that when we discover those forms of radical cooperation, those forms of agreement where, my God, I can see the same world, that you see. This is something that we can join together with. This is something upon which we can uh, we can cooperate and find deep forms of democratic friendship over. I think there's something about that discovery in the conditions of democratic life that end up forming the equivalent of a kind of transcendental basis. We discover something whereby we can hold one another to account and proceed in a manner that's not just sort of the lowest common denominator, but and that mightn't be maximalist, but can reach something that really is significant, even if it's if it begins sort of imminently or horizontally, it can actually become something that binds us together in ways okay, that are so as tenacious as um as marriage itself. So this is your departure point then for saying that one of the things we'll try to do in this series is see if there are grand ideas yeah. across traditions. That's right. That we can explore. That's right. right. So I get your methodology. But what's your topic? Okay. Sorry. I love methodology, though, Willie. I, I, I know. know. I, I get that you love methodology. It's all method. So, look, there is, no, <laughs> <laughs> there is no form of language that separates 
those who have lived before us from us, or that separates those who live within purely secular frames of reference and those who do not live in purely secular frames of reference. There's no form of language that I think separates those two groups, if you want to think of them along two axes, than the language of purification. This is something I find fascinating, Waleed. There is no way of reading the works of, say, Seneca, Aristotle, great Muslim theologians like Al-Ghazali, Christian theologians like Augustine or Aquinas, Uh, um, modern philosophers like Iris Murdoch or Simone Weil. There is no way of reading them without being confronted immediately by the centrality of the concern with the task of purification. The idea being that the true site of moral struggle isn't the external world, but is fundamentally the inner self. That all of the, the most fundamental struggles that take place within the moral life are being fought, are being wrestled with, are being waged against a deformed, uh, idolatrous, overweening sense of what, and now here we, here we come across, I think, differences in language. For the Stoics, for Aristotle, for Al-Ghazali, you tend to here talk about the soul or the self, something that is, say, distinct from the body, that finds a home within, a house within the body, and yet something, a kind of force, an energy, a compulsion, uh, a, um, a, a centrifugal energy that tends towards that which is base, that tends towards things like illusion, that tends towards the gratification of desire that tends towards, and I think this is a really important idea, that tends towards the projection of itself onto the screen, the stage of the external world. So one of the things that you find across all of these different traditions, right up to to a philosopher who has influenced me almost more than anyone else, like Iris Murdoch, is that this self, this soul, this ego has Uh, uh, its tendency is to so project itself onto the world that it makes the world and that makes the other people and things that populate that world little more than objects within my own gravitational pull. So these things exist not for me to recognize their pull upon me or my obligation to them, or that uh, um, these things exist not such that I can recognize them as existing in a, with a dignity or with an obligation that sort of demands my attention, that demands my awareness. But these things exist in such a way that they all fundamentally have to do with me, with my gratification. They exist for, uh, as something that I might crave, something that I might want, uh, and I mistake them as the objects that stand between me and my true happiness. If I can just have that, if that person would just relent to my will or to my desire, if I could just acquire or achieve that, if I could just gain that renown, that standing, that distinction, then all will be well. And I think one of the things that we find across this ancient, ancient tradition, uh, a, a tradition that runs right up to people in our, in our time, though in, in sort of philosophical or theological registers that are different from ours, 
is that the first sight of moral struggle is something about the struggle against this inner principle, against this mechanism of arcane or obscure energy, as Iris Murdoch once called it, that tends to impel me out into the world, yes, but that tends to see the world as something that exists for my use, in my interests, and therefore it's up to me to either pay attention to it or to cast it off with a degree of callousness when I think it's no longer in my interests to pay it attention. Who was it that put it this way, that when I think of others... I can only think of myself. Yeah. And when I think of myself, I can only think of others. Yeah. That is how others see me. Mm. But that at every point in that sort of mode of thinking, in that sort of way of interacting in the world, the thing that matters is oneself. Yes, that's exactly right. Rather than anything that is beyond it. Yeah. I'm not sure who said it. It's not an original quote. I don't want people to think I made that up. But But the language, Waleed, that runs through this concern is the language of purification. So the idea is that whatever we call this, the self, the soul, the ego, whatever we call it, it can't be extinguished. In other words, there's something about it that is human all too human. There is something about it that is that is inseparable from who we are. See, even for someone like Aristotle, what's at the basis of that soul, that self, is just Whatever, it is, whatever the principle is, the kind of the breath that runs through our body, that animates our body, that drives us out of the state of contemplation and that into, you know, drives us into the wider world. So it mightn't even be something, you know, any more than that, the thing that brings us into action, the things that makes us do the things that we do. But whatever it is, whatever this thing is, this soul, this self, this ego that orients us towards the world. The central concern of so much theological ethics, of so much, uh, so many spiritual exercises, of so much moral philosophy, is instead of extinguishing this thing, because if we extinguished this thing, we extinguish ourselves. There's something about it that is simply us. But how can it be so purified that what impels us outward, that the thing that we attach ourselves to is the highest, the best, that which is good, that which by being attached to it, throws light on everything else around it so that we can see the world and others truly and justly and purely and lovingly, and that we see ourselves with the proper degree of humility, or as Iris Murdoch put it, we reach something like a point of unselfing, where the ego shrinks and shrinks and shrinks such that we no longer pay it any mind. And yet... Mm, and yet, when you look at the way this has been discussed across these traditions, and the Greeks are a good example of this, probably less so Aristotle, although mm. to some extent Aristotle, <clears throat> it's not merely the erasure of some aspect of the soul that is the aim here, but more a question of balance. Mm. So, and I think of the sort of um, how would you describe this guy? Probably Neoplatonist approach sure. within Greek philosophy. My lady, you're that, talking my language. I know. I, I, there's no way to avoid it on this, I'm afraid. Yeah, I can see what you've done here. You've, okay. you've stacked the deck, into stacked your little the deck. corner. <laughs> um, but, the, you know, this sort of tripartite division of the soul that, mm. that the Greeks came up with, and Aristotle's is different and I think probably inferior to this, but 
this this neoplatonist one which was basically that there is a rational soul mm. that aspect of us that where the intellect predominates and judgment and wisdom and all these things exist there the irascible soul which is kind of where um our anger mm. lives another kind of high emotion um and then the appetitive soul which is really just all about stuff we want That's food right. sex you, you know, it was often simply to referred it. to as like the animal soul, almost. Or the, or the, the, well, the, that was kind the of animal yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So this is these are different aspects of the soul. I think what's interesting in the way that's discussed, and this gets picked up by the way in the other traditions you're talking about, and uh, Al Ghazali is a very good example of this in the Islamic tradition. But the idea is not to eliminate the appetitive soul or eliminate the irascible soul. The irascible soul does important things, such as. Their anger is an important element of human life. Mm. The, the problem is not how do we eliminate these things. The problem is how do we balance them so that the one that predominates is the one that should predominate in the right moment, mm. um, such that the, you know, our appetites or our irascible nature is reined in and subject to our higher rational capacities. Mm. for example. And what's at the heart of this, and I think the, the appetitive stuff is, speaks to this most clearly, is, and here's a, here's a language we just do not speak in our society, to what extent should we be giving into or reining in or keeping watch on just the very notion of desire? Mm. That's right. So we, we have, and to some extent, capitalism does this, right? We build what we, like our society, on the notion that we should be pursuing our wants, right? Mm. And that the only reason you wouldn't pursue a want is where there is a clear infringement on somebody else's right. Now, that might make sense as a political organisation or principle, and that's a different argument. But as a moral one, none of the ancients, I think, would have gone for that. Mm. <laughs> um, the whole question was, no, desire in and of itself is something of which we should probably be a little bit suspicious Perhaps the process of purification, as you're describing, this process of keeping these different elements of ourselves that are necessary for our existence but nonetheless can deeply corrupt it and destroy us, that actually that is a process of identifying and being prepared to, uh, I don't know, to use the language that is actually used by some of the ancients, go to war with these desires mm. within ourselves so that they are kept in check and we are the master of them rather than them being the master of us. Can I just pick up on that really quickly, Waleed? Yes. I mean, one of the things that I think is so interesting within the Stoic tradition, I'm not sure if I agree, but I find it so interesting that it's kind of irresistible to bring it up. Within Stoicism, there was a denial that there is anything like desire outside of rational bounds. We don't simply, I want that and then do it. What happens is desire goes as far as our prior rationality allows it to go. Yeah. So there are certain things, for instance, that are simply unthinkable to us. And when we say something is unthinkable to us, we are saying that we have made a decision outside of those moments of high passion, of overwhelming desire, that thus far and no further, period. Mm. And, and so within the Stoic tradition, that is fundamentally a, a rational choice. If you get excessively angry, it's because you've already made a decision that it is appropriate for you 
to get angry to that degree, and you're simply using this particular occasion as an alibi to get more angry than you already should have. So it's a problem with your rational decision in advance. Now, what's interesting, when you go, say, to the Aristotelian tradition, I see this in Al-Ghazali as well, and I see it in the work of someone like Simone Weil or Iris Murdoch. That decision in advance, this far but no further, the kind of the chastening of desire, if I can put it that way, that takes place not just rationally, but also through habits, through the language that we speak, through disciplines that we engage in outside of those moments of, say, high or overwhelming desire. It's the, it's the things that we do at certain high moments and in everyday speech, in everyday language, in everyday practices, whereby we constrain ourselves in such a way, we almost put ego on a leash, if I can put it like, like, yeah, like, like right. that, such that certain things are just impossible for us. So that when the moment, and this is something I've always loved about Iris Murdoch, she said, in our daily lives, in our daily interactions with others, we prepare, we cultivate the kind of moral agents that we will be, such that when the moment of choice comes, the choice has already been made. And I love that. It, it means that there are things that we will not do, even when all the chips are down. There are things we will not do because the way that we have constrained and disciplined and cultivated our moral lives prior to that moment place safeguards around us, such that these things are simply beyond us. And I'm not an observant Muslim, obviously, but is that not precisely what Ramadan is? I mean, it is a yeah, yeah. high moment of discipline but a high moment of discipline and self-restraint that then places the guardrails around one's behavior for uh, for the rest of our lives outside of those high yeah, moments well, of restraint. I was about to say, hence a practice like fasting. Yes, precisely. Um, so what we'll do, that's kind of a broad introduction. I think over the rest of the, the three remaining shows for this series, we'll look at particular kinds of instances of this and in particular, I don't know, are there desires or areas of our lives where maybe that sort of restraint is something we should be observing, or at least the ancients would say that we should, and we'll see how that plays out. Alas, we have to get into this one properly with a guest that is going to enlighten us far more than we've been able to enlighten you so far. This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, as you might be doing right now, or you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. It's a tremendous honor to have this guest on this program. Jonathan Gold is Professor of Religion and Director of the Center for Culture, Society and Religion at Princeton University. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Minefield. Thank you very much, Scott and Waleed. It's really a pleasure to be here, an honor. Thank uh, you. So one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, Jonathan, quite apart from my admiration of your work, I obviously approach this topic as people would have already heard from a particular perspective. Waleed does from his. Um, you're a Buddhist philosopher for whom the language of desire, of defilement, of attachment, of purification is also, I mean, there is no way of understanding Buddhist ethics without coming to grips with precisely what this language means. So, You've heard what we've said. Why don't you just help us to understand? It seems to me that at the heart of what it is that we're talking about, especially when we're talking about 
desire and its corruptions, your desire and its chastening, is a particular understanding, not just of the self, but also the relationship between the self and the world. So I'm just going to hand it over to you and you can take us where you think we ought to go. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, there's a great deal here. Of course, so much of what you said resonates remarkably with Buddhist tradition. And you're quite right that it's hard to imagine Buddhism without this emphasis on precisely this term purification, which shows up so much in Buddhist practice discussions, but also the discussion of the central problematic of desire. Desire as the main engine of ego. Of course, the word ego isn't the word that the Buddhist tradition uses. Uh, they use the word Atman, the self, as you've mentioned. But the Buddhist tradition is so different from the general picture you set out just now in, in one very crucial respect, which is that the Buddhist tradition does not endorse the idea that there really is a self um, and doesn't endorse the idea that we should purify the self. It says instead that desire generates the false picture of a self and generates our attachment to that false picture. So craving is the basis for our wanting ourselves to be a particular way. And to be the sort of person maybe that uh, is capable of satisfying those desires. Um, so desire makes us sort of outrun our capacity by creating a picture that we are something that we're not. Um, maybe that's a beginning. Hmm. It's really interesting, though, that you say that because I'm immediately put in mind of the vast Sufi literature within the Islamic tradition that may not use those that sort of phrasing, but wants to get to the same thing. So the idea being that the end goal of purification is not a purified self so much as a movement. It, well, the, the phrase they use, the word they use is fana, which means a kind of annihilation. It's like a self-annihilation. That is like a, a mystic state or a, a point of spiritual ascension or a spiritual station that is such that there is nothing left except God. That's it. And I understand that there might be differences there with the Buddhist tradition, right. but the so basic idea there God, is very similar, right? Yeah, that's quite right. I mean, even God is, a, is not going to be present for the Buddhist. God would be another version of self because really the attachments that are generated as a result of desire, that is desire generates our attachments to things that we want, cravings, uh, project even ideas, uh, even our picture of the world is just part of our expanded ego. And so we attach ourselves to particular kinds of concepts and particular frames of reference. And that's why the cultivation of habits, as you mentioned, is so crucial to undermine not just our uh, egotistic attachment to what we tend to want, but our way of looking at the world has to change in order for us to free ourselves of false habits and false perceptions that then, you know, we can, if we cannot overcome them, we can behave better and we can train ourselves to behave better. So let me have a crack at something here, because one of the things that I am really intent on doing, I, I don't think 
that that properly religious concepts can be extracted from or cleansed of the language in which they're framed. So I, I don't think you can simply sort of take really nice religious concepts, put them in a slightly secular uh, vernacular, and then end up with something exactly the same. Uh, so that's not my intention here, but I am interested in maybe trying to translate some of this into a manner where, okay, someone, say, does not accept uh, an Islamic uh, view of reality of the soul, of the soul's orientation to God of the world. Uh, a person might not accept the non-existence of the self within the Buddhist tradition. There is something I think really interesting, though, that one comes across within certain forms of moral philosophy that are so resonant with what both of you have said that it's impossible to to ignore. I mean, if we consider the moral life or the process of moral formation, moral purification, let me say that very, very clearly, the process of moral purification as a kind of endless inward censoriousness, a, a minute pain of attention to every intention, every thought, every goal. There's something about that, that very process of inner attentiveness that can become a form of counterproductive egotism, where my own purification becomes, if you like, the end, the goal that I'm seeking. Whereas yeah, it's, the, it's the new God. It's the new God, precisely right. And then any sort of external transcendental guarantee is this the... Is what, uh... Shogyam Trungpa called spiritual materialism. Yes, precisely right. Um, precisely right. And then the benevolent eyes of God looking at me, pleased with what I've done to purify myself, they then become the great sort of projection of the great, what Iris Murdoch beautifully called the fat, relentless ego, looking upon me and you know, nodding, grinning, saying, yes, well done. Well, this, this is why you get some of those idiosyncratic Sufi stories, right, of like um, the man who wanted to get rid of all his wealth because he didn't want to be attached to his wealth, but then realised if he gave it away, he would be pleased with himself, so he just <laughs> threw it into the ocean. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so, right, I mean, and you have all these stories of the Zen masters besting one another with their, you know, um, even though they're so far along on the path, they can always be shown to have inflated ego that needs to be popped. So there's something then here, I think, at the heart of the very idea of the purification of the inner life, let's just put it that way, that fundamentally has to do with the degree of self-forgetfulness, such that at a particular point of purification, the self gets so small, the reality of, the beauty of, the needs of, the realities quite apart from me and my interests that exist outside of me, they become the thing that loom most largely. They then become the thing which, if you like, gathers the entirety or the near entirety of my attention. There's this moment in Rainer Maria Rilke's uh, famous letters to his wife about the 1907 Saison exhibition, where he exclaims to his wife kind of excitedly, Saison does not paint, I like it. He paints, there it is. And I think there's something about the recognition that there is a world that exists in a beauty and with a goodness or in a brokenness that is beyond me and that is outside my interest that then so fills our vision or, or the reality of another person who is in need 
and who warrants my love, my attention, my sacrifice, my generosity. They are then the things that loom to such a degree that the self shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And then what's important is to place in place all of those disciplines, those habits, those forms of restraint and restriction that permit me to see those things as clearly as I ought. Does that resonate with anything with you, Jonathan? Sure, of course. I mean, I want to say the chastening of desire uh, through various kinds of, well, vows in the Buddhist tradition. If you're going to be a follower of the Buddhist tradition, you take vows to prevent yourself from killing and stealing um, and also telling lies and taking intoxicants. But also then, of course, if you're going to become a a monk, uh, you give up a whole set of other things, you know, sex first, and you live a life of poverty, and you don't eat after noon, ideally. Um, and so there are a whole host of rules that restrict your behavior. And that's only the beginning, right? So the living what's considered the moral life is the beginning and the foundation for uh, later cultivations or uh, more advanced cultivations, which begin with calming the mind. And calming the mind is, as you're saying, calming the ego, but it's it's calming all the various components that are constructing that ego. So sitting and meditating and introspecting and just sort of noticing the nature of the mind, looking closely is the beginning of wanting to let go. It becomes possible to let go once you see how dysfunctional the mind is when it ordinarily operates. We think that we're going to get what we desire. But actually, desire isn't just serving our needs. It's not just serving our needs in a kind of straightforwardly immoral way. It's failing to serve our needs because it's posing, it's posing, it's a poser, it's a salesman, uh, it's a huckster. Desire is always trying to sell us something that we don't really need. And in general, it creates a kind of tension and pain that makes us want to get the thing that we desire. And then when we get the thing that we desire, the desire is satisfied and goes away. And we think that we've actually uh, achieved something. But the thing that we think we want doesn't actually satisfy us because there's always another desire that comes up next. And we're hurting. The idea of having indulged a desire feeds the idea of desire per se. And so that that then continues to grow. So there's there's that sort of idea that's within it. This idea that the easiest way for me to satisfy my desires was to renounce them. <laughs> or, you know, that yeah, a person exactly. is, is rich in, a, to, in proportion to the desires they don't have, basically. So mm-hmm. I get, yeah, so those ideas I get. However, there is one element of this that I think, like I can imagine a lot of people listening to this conversation go, this is just completely esoteric and just too extreme. The reality is, this is where I come back to the idea of balancing, I guess. The reality is we have these desires within us and they exist probably for very good reason. I mean, without them, we would die. If we were capable of renouncing our desires just like that, we would cease to eat and that would be the end of us. And then we would cease to procreate and that would be the end of the species and so on. So in other words, the desires that we have within us they exist for good reason or for good purposes. And this is where I think it gets really interesting is how does one measure appropriate restraint that doesn't go to a level of just total self-destruction? 
how does one achieve, or is the aim, I mean, I would argue it is, I it might be very different from a Buddhist perspective, I don't know, Jonathan, but where is that that balance mm. to be so, struck? Al-Ghazali's idea is you go to an opposite extreme from your desire as a corrective, not as an ideal. And so once you've broken your attachment to that particular desire, then you revert to the mean because now you can eat, it's fine, because you're no longer attached to food. And so eat and the, the function of the desire is fulfilled. That's his way of doing it. But I just wonder, I, I, I wonder what reflections you might have on that, Jonathan. Yeah, that's a really interesting question because the Buddhist tradition doesn't present it, even though I started with you know, talking about monks. Uh, it's always dangerous to start talking about monks. And we're just trying to rationalize Buddhism and make it sound uh, even-handed and moderate. But most Buddhists are not, uh, historically have not been monks. Uh, most Buddhists have taken vows uh, to stop from killing, but not to stop from having sex and living a normal life and economic, you know, and being involved in the economy and so on. The Buddhist tradition sees itself as picking up on renouncer traditions from India's past, where people would engage in uh, terrible austerities, extremely painful austerities. And the Buddha considered what he was doing a very moderate path. I mean, they were, after all, eating. Uh, they weren't starving themselves. And the Buddha had mm -hmm. engaged in extreme you know, self-starvation almost right up until uh, when he finally figured out that it was a middle path, what he calls a middle path, that was actually going to work to attain liberation. And he started eating again. And that's where he gained enough uh, control over his mind. So the, the measure for the Buddha of what counts as the appropriate degree of renunciation is how do you cultivate yourself so that you can control your mind? So that your mind is not mm -hmm. spinning off in other directions and it's not too dull and is not too obsessed with one thing or another. And that is, again, something that you can only really accurately gauge by looking inward. Um, mm. You have to notice what are the things that inflame your desire? What are the things that allow you to calm down and focus and think more clearly and see what you're actually uh, supposed to be doing? So there's a lot of Alcazalian resonances there, yeah. Um, if you've just joined us, you're listening to The Minefield. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. The voice you just heard belongs to Jonathan Gold, who is a Buddhist philosopher and professor of religion at Princeton University. There are real differences here, though. And here I think I need to mark my difference from both of you. Because there is something, I think, certainly in the way that many philosophical traditions have understood desire, that see it as that which impresses upon the person the reality of that which is not the person. In other words, desire is something like the way that we register the fact of the world and of people outside of us. The problem is when that desire attaches upon something that is an unworthy object or that by its nature further inflames that desire by making it unsatisfiable. And interestingly enough, I'm not sure if you both realize this, but uh, in Aristotle's great treatise on politics, the archetype of this improper object of desire 
is, he said, is currency, is money, because money is as such nothing. It is simply a placeholder for a greater form of value. And by attaching to the acquisition of nothing, by definition, that nothing can never satisfy. And therefore, it inflames the word that he used is craving or is lust, which makes us want it more and more. So the question then becomes, if we do have this thing that registers in us, a longing for attachment with that which is not us, then the temptation is always to attach to unworthy objects or to attach to objects in such a way that what we desire is to acquire them, to consume them, to gratify ourselves through them. That can be things, that can be people. Whereas within, I mean, you see this in Plato and you see it right through to, again, someone like Iris Murdoch. By attaching ourselves to what is good, capital G, good, the beauty, the reality of the world, that which is beyond our interests and beyond our desires, but that which impresses itself upon us as something that can't be possessed by us, but again, imposes itself by paying careful attention to the good that good then sheds a light on everything else so that we see things in their nobility and in their dignity and in their autonomy. And we suddenly see people and things not simply as that which we can acquire and possess and which we can use to gratify ourselves, but we see things that exist in their own capital B beauty, capital D dignity, and that our lives then, if you like, get turned inside out so that the Desire still exists. In other words, the impulsion of the self outward still exists. The orientation of life outward still exists. But suddenly, the fat, relentless ego at the center of it that seeks to reduce all things to its own satisfaction, that then becomes tamed or eradicated. So I think there's something, there's something there about desire as a fact. Yes, desire maybe as something that is even necessary. The real concern is, is it attached to that which sheds light on all other things, or are we simply using that as an object for our own satisfaction? Well, I think when you talk about desire in the Buddhist tradition, you're talking about several different things. So it might be uh, helpful to separate out, first of all, just a general preference for proper behavior, which involves you know cultivating oneself in the proper direction. So generating good habits is something that one should desire, but that's not motivated by craving. And I think also appreciation of virtue is another form of desire in the sense of uh, one wishes for oneself to be involved with someone else's achievement. But it, when you appreciate that, it's not a form of desire in the sense of consumption that you're describing. But that craving in the Buddhist tradition, that's the, the root, that thirst, that's the, the core of suffering in the Buddhist tradition, generates both desire and aversion. Um, it's the root of wanting to take something into oneself and also wanting to violently force something away or destroy something. Um, and that's because you do, you want something in yourself to be different, you want to change the situation. If, if you want things to be different than they are, and you can't accept things as they are, you can't accept your own nature, or you can't accept your situation, and you want to change things, and that generates in you this powerful, energetic 
force of hatred or craving, that's going to be destructive. I wonder if the difference is what is being craved. Sorry, Jonathan, I might have appropriated your word and used it to an end that's more Scots and is not befitting of yours, but um, <laughs> if you'll forgive the word game. But I, but I wonder, I mean, Scott, that's kind of what you're saying, isn't it, right? Yeah. That the thing that matters is the telos. Yeah, that's right. right. And the so, well, sorry, go, Jonathan. So the Buddhist tradition, I'm sorry if you don't mind, the, the Buddhist tradition has the worldly goals, right? So if you're talking about the telos, there are worldly goals that are always, uh, in one way or another, delusive. So possessions, as Scott mentioned, are always going to be a problem because you can't ever reach the end of them. Actually, all mm. of these are, are in this way kind of liquid achievements that you, you can always get more and more status and power like possessions can always be increased and you're always sort of relative to someone else who has more or has you want to step over someone else. Um, but the Buddhist tradition also talks about sensory experience. Delicacy is a good example of sort of sensory experience also has a kind of graded series. This is a theme when whenever I'm teaching the idea of desire for students, it's you know, we talk about the, you know, the hedonic treadmill, right? So that... Mm -hmm. When you have a particular level of achievement, you always want more. And that's the case for sensory experience as well. The next time around, uh, you don't want the same kind of a meal. You want something a little bit better. If you, if you really enjoy a particular kind of ice cream, you want the best kind of ice cream. If you eat a lot of ice cream and you keep going back, you start not liking your basic kind of ice cream. And you, you want the more refined flavors. And so you're always searching and searching for the next thing. The hedonic treadmill, That's... I think, is a good place for us to end because um, it's amazing you said that. I came into this show thinking I must talk about the hedonic treadmill and I completely forgot. So I'm really glad that you, <laughs> you brought that up at the last moment, Jonathan. We are, I'm afraid, out of time. We could definitely keep going. But we'll have to do that off air, I think. Um, but thanks so much for helping us kick off the series. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Jonathan Gold is Professor of Religion and the Director of the Centre for Culture, Society and Religion at Princeton University, also a Buddhist philosopher. Our guest for this week's edition of The Mindfield, the first in our Ramadan series. We'll be back with the second instalment next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.